0: You as a Christian, according to Paul, will experience the opposite. So not rejection, not condemnation, not the fearful expectation of looming disaster. What does he describe? He says life and peace. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans. Preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, as we open up the eighth chapter of Romans today, the title of our sermon is Polar Opposites. And there are some things that are just no matter how you try to reconcile them, no matter how you try to put them together, they just stand in stark opposition. If you're a sports fan, we are never really going to get a Red Sox fan to sit down with a Yankees fan and agree which one is the better team. It didn't happen in this service either. No one yelled out their favorite team in first service either. but. Uh, It's not going to happen. In like manner, we'll never get the Cubs or Cardinals fans to agree on which one of them is the worst team in baseball. (laughs) Just joking, I have a friend here who is a Cubs fan. We, We can try through diplomacy to go to the Middle East and try to reconcile the Shiite and the Sunni, but we know no matter how much we attempt to bring reconciliation, no matter how polite we are, those two groups are just irreconcilable. There's some things that don't go together. Words like government intelligence. They just just don't go together, no matter how much you try to put them together. What we're gonna see in our text today is the difference between the unbeliever and the believer and how in one corner, we have a life dominated by sin, and in the other corner, we have a life dominated by the spirit. And these six verses, Romans chapter 8, verses five through 11, are much more the indicative than the imperative. What do I mean by that? I mean that a lot of times you'll sit in a sermon and the the text will lend itself to the imperative, meaning here's what you need to go do, and you're motivated to action. Other times, and what we're going to look at today, the text and the sermon is much more indicative, meaning it's a description of who you are and, and whose you are. And so when we approach the text today, this is not one of those sermons where you're going to be given work gloves and told to go tend to the garden. This is going to be one of those sermons where we kind of lean back and we rest in the glorious truth of the gospel. Last week in chapter eight, verses one through four, we were reminded as we began to study this chapter that one of the great themes of this majestic section of scripture is our assurance, the assurance we have that we are saved. And specifically, we looked at the fact that Romans 8 ends with this assurance that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. And we began looking in Romans 8:1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We saw last week that Paul says we have a higher law, a higher principle, a greater principle by which to live our lives. We have the law of the spirit of life in Christ. And today in verse five, there's a big word. The word is for. So this is a transitional thought from that idea into this series of concepts where we learn about the superiority of the spirit to our natural sin-laden state. And so what Paul's gonna do and what we're gonna do is draw a series of great contrasts between unbelievers and believers. So if you're taking note today, we usually outline the text with um, sections and Paul doesn't give us a clean outline of section, but he gives us an outline of idea. And the two ideas here are the flesh and the spirit. So if you're taking note, we're gonna look at four aspects of each of these, of the flesh and the spirit, two rival masters, and the person who is under their control. Again, polar opposites, and the one who's submitted to them are polar opposites of one another. So if you're taking note, four things we're gonna see today. We're gonna see number one, concentration, In other words, what someone fixes their mind upon and how they live differently. We're gonna see connection. What is their relationship or fellowship with God? The one who's in the flesh, the one who's in the spirit. We're gonna see capability. In other words, what power is offered to the person who is submitted to the flesh or the spirit? And finally, we're gonna see consequence. What fate awaits the person who is under their authority? Four areas of great contrast of great conflict between the flesh and the spirit. So let's begin with that first idea of concentration. Look at verse five with me. Again, a big transitional word for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. You see the contrast here between flesh and spirit. Now I want to make sure we start today by defining some terms so that you're not maybe on the wrong page. So let's define some terms. Let's define flesh. Let's define spirit. On the screen, uh, John Stott is helpful here. The word flesh is the Greek word sarx. And this does not refer to our body tissue, though in the New Testament, the word flesh in our English can sometimes refer to that. It doesn't mean it contextually here, nor does it mean our instincts and appetites. But what Paul's referring to here is our fallen egocentric human nature. That's a definition from Cranfield. Zeisler says it this way, the flesh is this, it is the sin-dominated self. I love how Martin Luther, in his favorite way to describe our nature that has fallen in Adam, he said it is a nature that is deeply curved in on itself. That's an apt description. It is the sin-dominated self that is turned back in on itself. One of the things that we taught our children when they were very young I mean, very young, barely able to talk. Uh, they've got their sippy cup and the sippy cup falls and they begin to cry. And, oh, someone cried on cue. And, uh, and, and then basically they begin to maybe pound their fists, you know, and pound their chest and just have this animosity and this, this anger. And uh, maybe, maybe it was that, maybe the, you know, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse was on and I turned the channel. And so they start acting out. And we would say to them, uh, hey, that's the flesh, right? You're, you're walking in the flesh. And so uh, we taught our two-year-old son at the time, Aiden. He's now 17. But we said, that's right, Aiden. That's that, That's the flesh. We'd say, say it. What is it? And he'd say, the flesh. Right? He could barely kind of say it back. And we said, well, what do we do with the flesh? And he'd say, we crucify the flesh. <laughs> we, we put it to death. And so we taught our kids at a very young age that you're walking in the sin-dominated, curved in on flesh. Now, we, we um, separate that definition with spirit. Now, what is the spirit? In the Greek, this is the word pneuma. And when Paul says spirit here, this is not your spirit, our spirit. It should be capitalized in the text and in the ESV it is. Uh, nor does it mean being spiritual. That's a phrase we use today. A lot of people use it. And the, what they really mean is mystical. So there's the largest growing like self-identity of religious groups now today is either the nuns, we don't affiliate with any religious group, or the SBNR, the spiritual but not religious. And what they really mean by that is I'm not a part of a local faith community, so I'm, it's not really spiritual, it's mystical. Uh, that's not what Paul's referring to here. He's, he is referring to the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so we have the sin-dominated self and we have the person of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit. Now, when Paul says in verse 5, those who live according to, in context, he's speaking about the idea of domination. And when he says to set your mind on the sin-dominated self, that actually means your disposition or your concentration, what you're concentrating on, what you're submitting to. So your disposition is where you set your mind, it's where you focus your desires, and it's where you order your life under if you're to set your mind according to the flesh, right, then you're now living that way. And so the unbeliever, devoid of the spirit, has a propensity, has a habit, has a tendency, has a frame of mind that expresses itself in habitual practice of submitting itself to a corrupt and sinful nature inherited from Adam. And and this stimulates a desire to sin and to miss the mark of God. Even as as it's doing that, it's engaging in self-justification and self-glory and in judgment towards others. I would say it this way. What preoccupies the person who's submitted to the flesh is 24-7 self. So every ambition, every concern, every motivation, every driving consideration is bent eventually back in on itself. And what will bring me self-satisfaction? What will stand to justify me before others? What brings me the most glory? And the unbelievers' lusts drive them to satiate what they're longing for. And so their pursuits are all self-aggrandizement. Now you might see an unbeliever and you go, well, they don't look that bad actually. I've seen some unbelievers who like are trying to do great things. They don't look vile. They look like kind people. And I would say, well, yeah, you can cloak the flesh, cloak your true nature through humanitarian aid. You can cloak it through activism. I mean, you can do great things. You can have a kind disposition. You can do needed good and global works that help the marginalized and the hurting. But in the end, it doesn't matter if you're giving away scholarships to dogs. It doesn't matter how much you're trying to do in the community the push for outward deeds in the end is really just self-praise and it's self-justification. So the unregenerate believer will stand before God and in his, in his bravado, he'll stand and believe I'm owed a blessing and the praise of men, the good works that I've, that I've seemingly done should justify me. I should be in right standing with God. So even though it's under the guise of good, it's still the flesh. It's still bent back on itself. You see, Paul reminded the Ephesian believers what it looks like to live in Adam, what we looked like, you and I, before Christ. He says in Ephesians 2, among whom we, that's you and I as Christians, we all, that's everyone, once lived in the passions of our, there's a word again, flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That pretty much includes every human being. We are we all included in that. There's not one random exception. Well, that guy was really, really kind to people. And so he gets an out. He gets, he gets a, there's an exception clause. And all of us once lived in the passions of our flesh. We're born in the flesh. We're dominated by the flesh. But note the contrast between that person and the rest of verse 5, those who are now living according to the Spirit. The one who's been made alive by the Spirit of God now has a disposition that sets its mind on, that submits its desires to, and gives its submission under the Holy Spirit of God. So every ambition, every concern, every motivation, every drive and consideration is no longer molded for what I get out of it, but it's now shaped by what God desires, what's good and righteous. So that means in Christ, because of the Spirit, I don't hunger after the things of this world anymore. I don't have to hunger. I now live for what brings God honor and renown. I'm looking for his name to be great, not my name. It means that I'm no longer seeking my own glory. I'm seeking to live solely dea glory, meaning I want to live all to the glory of God. I'm living Coram Deo before the face of God, knowing my life is to be pleasing to him in all things. So now when I live with other Christians, I don't look and judge. I look and say, I'm not to justify myself before you. I'm no better than you. No, you and I together collectively look in awe at the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to each of us. And so when I do good works, it's not to feel better about myself and so I can sleep good at night knowing I was a good Christian son. No, it's the fact that he's made me alive. I'm new. I'm not trying to enlarge my own righteousness, my own awesomeness. I'm here to simply please God. So all of humanity is either living with the mind of the flesh or they're living according to the spirit. Now let's look down at verse seven. Skip down with me and I'll tell you why we're skipping a little bit in a moment. But look at verse seven and notice our connection. He says in verse seven, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. What is the relationship that the unbeliever has with the holy God? God according to Paul, it's hostility. Now, I want you to circle that word hostility. It's used six times in our New Testament. And uh, I tried to find an out, but every time it's used, it means hostility. It means enmity. It means opposition. It means hatred. By the way, this is the word that Herod, it was used of Herod and Pilate when they, remember, they were previously enemies, but then at the trial of Jesus, it says they kind of became friends. They came together. But the word that's used there is this word, uh, enmity, hostility. They, they previously were at odds. Now, when I say hostility here, your relationship as an unbeliever to a holy God, when I say hostility, I don't just mean like, yeah, we just see things a little bit differently. We're not talking about like, what's your favorite sherbet flavor? Because it's clearly orange, right? We're, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about which is better, Star Wars or Star Trek, because it's clearly Star Wars. We all know this. This is not the idea. We just kind of disagree. Me and the man upstairs agree to disagree. He's a little too strict, but we're, no, that's not the idea at all. The idea uh, is the same idea found in Ephesians 2:15 and 16 that speaks of a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile that Christ has torn down through his bodily death and resurrection. John Edie says this about that enmity between Jew and Gentile. He says, this is a hatred which rose like a party wall and kept both races at a distance. Deep hostility lay in their bosoms. The Jew looked down with supercilious contempt upon the Gentile. And the Gentile reciprocated and scowled upon the Jew as a haughty and heartless bigot. This rancor formed of necessity a middle wall of partition. But Jesus, who is our peace, hath broken it down. See, prior to Christ, Jew and Gentile weren't just disagreeing. They were absolute adversaries. And that's the word that's used here in Romans 8, 7. See, the mind that's set on the flesh is not just kind of seeing things differently. It's not in mere disagreement with God. No, it is as opposed to God as one can get. And the way that Paul quantifies that, Paul says the proof to quantify that is that the reality that it does not submit. The mind in the flesh does not submit to God's law. Now that word submit, that's found there, uh, or subject is a military term. We find that in the section on wives submitting to husbands. The idea is that you arrange under. So you, in the military, subordinate yourself willingly to your commanding officer, but also to your orders. So as a good soldier, you are given an order and your commanding officer is kind of enforcing that order and you're, you do well to follow that order. But see, the mindset on the flesh marches under a different banner. They march under the banner of Yahweh revolt. So the one who is, not submitted, uh, who is not submitted to God is not submitted to God's law. And in fact, in the third section, we'll see it cannot. It cannot. Not only will it not, it cannot. This is a heavier concept than I think we realize, this enmity. I like what Spurgeon says about this. Charles Spurgeon said, it's not black, but blackness. It's not at enmity, it is enmity. It's not corrupt, it's corruption. It's not rebellion, it is, uh, rebel, yes, it is rebellion. It's not wicked, it's wickedness itself. The heart that would be deceitful is positively deceit. It's evil in the concrete, sin in the essence. It is the distillation, the quintessence of all things that are vile. It's not envious against God, it is envy. It's not at enmity, it is actual enmity. You see, on their best day, a sinner is still a sworn enemy of Yahweh. So the mind of the flesh will not submit itself to the good law of God because that represents the person of God, the righteousness of God. I would say it this way, a member of ISIS may do a good act in sparing the life of a captured US citizen. They may do a good act by not taking their life and they release them and let them go. But that act doesn't detract from the fact that they're in absolute enmity with the U.S. government. And I can tell you very positively, no member of ISIS has a copy of the Constitution where they say, I want to submit to this. I want to order my life under the U.S. Constitution. And in like manner, the unbeliever who submitted to the mind of the flesh, it will not submit to God's law, nor can it. Now look at verse nine, look down at verse nine and note the contrast. That's the mind of the flesh. Now look at the mind of the spirit. Verse nine, he says, you however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So let me just give you this great truth today. Believer, you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit and the spirit is in you. You see the relationship here? Now there's a phrase that's used a lot uh, the phrase is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you've heard that phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, the baptism is different than being filled and empowered with the Spirit. See, the Bible tells us there's one baptism. Ephesians 4, 5, we've been baptized into Christ. And when that happens, when we came to faith in Christ, we were baptized into his family with the Holy Spirit. And that just simply means you were indwelt, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When we talk about being filled with the Spirit, Paul would say, be constantly filled. Be in a state of continual filling of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be filled with the Spirit on an ongoing basis for boldness in our witness and for the Spirit's strength in our sanctification. So when the Bible says the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that refers to you and I being baptized into Christ and the Holy Spirit making us alive and sealing us until the day of redemption. That means salvation. So you're in the spirit and the spirit is in you. And I find it fascinating that in Ephesus, a major seaport in the east, they had these large markets where you would go and purchase goods that had come in to the seaport. You would purchase them. And merchants would want to send those uh, purchases back home. And what they would do is they'd pack them into crates and then they would take the seal of ownership that represented their family or their company there, and they would stamp it onto the crate. They'd take wax, they would stamp their seal onto uh, the wax, and that showed the seal of ownership. So then when the final destination, those crates were were unpacked, the uh, servants of each merchant would go and they would see, okay, yeah, that doesn't have the owner's... Uh, a stamp of ownership. Oh, here, this is ours. And they look at the seal and know this one belongs to our master. And I find it fascinating that to that city, the church in that city in Ephesians 1, Paul says, having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. You see, you and I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a mark of ownership, We belong to a new owner. We are God's inheritance. And in that sense, we belong to Christ. And notice at the end of verse nine, he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So logical opposite of that, if we do have the spirit of Christ, then we do belong to Christ. I would say it this way, to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit is to belong to Christ. Indwelling equals belonging. Isn't that wonderful? that you and I who have repented of our sins and trusted Christ, we are now indwelt with the spirit of God who's sealed us and now we belong. We've always looked for a place to belong and here in God's family, and God's people, we belong. So listen to, listen to me very carefully. Your connection as a Christian with God by his spirit, it's both personal and it's permanent. Glory be to God. Now, notice this third section, capability. What do these masters, so to speak, flesh and spirit. What do they offer us in ability? We left off in the middle of verse seven, but let's pick it back up. It says, for the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile at enmity to God. It does not submit to God's law. And here it is, indeed it cannot. Then he says in verse eight, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the natural man, not regenerated by the spirit, lacks the actual capability, the ability in their own strength. They lack that to subordinate themselves to the law of God. Not only is he a sworn enemy, he's dead. He's a dead enemy. And the last time I checked, corpses are not conjuring up a lot of anything. Now, if you have a smartphone, hopefully it's on silent. uh, You and I, many of us have these. And if your smartphone battery dies, which they do, 10 minutes in sometimes to using them, uh, because we use them too much, they're distracting often. Uh, if your phone dies on you, well, not if, when your phone dies on you, uh, it would be foolish, right, to just take the phone and just pound it on the table and then expect the battery life to jump from zero to 50%, right? That doesn't happen. Uh, in other words, you need to connect it to an outside external power supply. There's, there's nothing within the phone itself when it's drained of all power that can produce power within itself, Maybe they'll come up with some invention, but at the moment, it doesn't exist. And in like manner, the natural man cannot just like produce the pleasure of God, cannot produce the law of God, submitting to God. They're unable to produce a pleasing life from within any more than a dead battery suddenly finds life within itself. So just think about that for a minute. Before Christ, or if you're here today listening and you're not in Christ, there is no religious observance there is no spiritual calisthenics. There's no perceived sincerity or making sure you have straight white teeth that will satisfy a holy God because you're a rebel dead in your sin. It's a scary place to be. The flesh offers no pleasure to God. It offers no ability to please and serve God. But notice verse 11. The opposite of that is verse 11. Notice we as Christians have the capability to please God because we've been given the power of the resurrection life in the spirit. This is an outside power source that comes to renew us from the inside out. So, so note verse 11. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, sometimes we get confused about the word if, and the word if is also found in verse nine and can sometimes cause confusion. We're thinking it's conditional. Well, it depends on if, if I have the Holy Spirit like right now in my life, uh, and then we look in verse nine like, okay, well, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and so if he's not dwelling in me right the second where I have some external experience, then that means maybe I could lose my salvation. I think that's misunderstanding the Greek. The Greek here... Instead of if, it would better be translated since. Okay, so verse 11, read it this way. Since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will also give life to your moral bodies through his spirit. And so in verse 9, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, since, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. This gives us such confidence and rest. And when Paul says in verse 11, uh, or actually back in verse 7 and 8, that the mindset on the flesh cannot submit and it cannot please God. The word for can is found also in Acts 1.8. And it's the ability, it's the power to do and to be the people that God's called us to be. Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you will receive power or the ability to be my witnesses and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. You will receive power, the Greek word is dunamis, And that does not mean dynamite, right? I'm going to have dynamite power. That's not the idea. The the idea is dynamic power, the, the ability to do. I will be given the dynamic ability to be a witness, not because I'm particularly dynamic by any means, but no, because I've been given resurrection life by the Spirit. You, as Christians, we have been given the Spirit's power to live a life not only submitted to God, but even pleasing to God. Now, Before you get impressed with your own awesomeness, uh, let me remind us of where that power comes from. John Owen reminds us there is no good that we receive from God, but it is brought to us and wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. Nor is there in us any good towards God, any faith, love, obedience to his will, but what we are enabled to do so by the Holy Spirit so don't get a big head. You need to rest in what the Spirit does. So because we have the Spirit of Christ, we can now live a life that's pleasing to Christ. But see, those who are not in Christ both will not and cannot. No capability uh, to get there. Now, where does living in the flesh or living in the Spirit lead us? In other words, what, faith, what fate awaits the person who's marching under their respective banners. What fate awaits you? The reason we exposited the text a little bit out of order consecutively was just to make sure this point was final. Uh, The consequence, where this leads you, is found in verse six and 10. Look at verse six. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. Death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and an extra and peace. And then he reiterates this idea in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So think about this consequence in the order it's given to us here, described, but also backwards. I like how John MacArthur presents this. So instead of just thinking, well, if I'm in the flesh, then I can expect death, think of the consequence in reverse. Because I'm dead, I'm going to live in the flesh. Because I'm made alive, I have a life-oriented life oriented towards life peace and righteousness. So the death that Paul re, uh, speaks of in verse 6. When he says death, he's not referring to physical death. So this does not mean to die physically. Though, I will say a life submitted to the flesh can and will lead to decisions that may end your life through disease, decay and disaster. The death no, the death he's getting at though is the legal spiritual separation from God on the day of judgment. And that judgment looms overhead and is indeed counting down, but will culminate one day in final condemnation. You as a Christian, according to Paul, will experience the opposite. So not rejection, not condemnation, not the fearful expectation of looming disaster. What does he describe? He says life and peace. The word for peace is shalom. You and I experience shalom, and shalom, by the way, is not just you as a mom getting a break from the, the like, loud kiddos. That's, that's not the true peace we're talking about here, the, even though that would be great, right, every once in a while to have that. The idea of shalom is the wholeness of life oriented under the grace of God. So it's not just like turn the music down and, and make everyone be quiet in the car. I find that peace. That's not the idea. It's your entire life, the wholeness of life oriented under the grace of God. And that's the typical greeting in the New Testament. Grace to you and peace. May the grace of God be our banner and may our life be wholly submitted and oriented underneath his grace. As verse 10 describes, our body may still have a sin nature and to be present in the body before we die and are resurrected and united with Christ means to still have a sin nature present. I would say the best way to describe our Bodies is that they're oriented toward death. So he says, To be in the body is death. Lloyd Jones, by the way, Martin Lloyd Jones, who is a pastor and physician, he says this, and maybe some of us relate to this more than others. He says, The moment we enter this world and begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you will ever take. And then he says, The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. The moment we breathe our first it was one of our last. Our body is oriented towards death. And though the body is dead in relationship to the spirit, those who are in Christ, we now have the spirit within us. So spiritually we're made alive. And this spirit produces a person joined with Jesus that can only be summed up in one word. It's not death, it's life. And that's what we have in the spirit. We have life because of what he's done. So in this text, we have two different minds. We have two different ways. We have two different lives. And these two lives are in stark opposition to one another. I want to say this before we apply this text. If you're here today or you're watching online or you're listening to this podcast at some point in the future, if you've not repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you need, you must respond to the gospel. Uh, The gospel is that the creator God made all things and it was indeed good, but man rebelled. Man became spiritually separated from God and sin entered the world and death through sin. And because of that, creation began to unravel. And yet in God's perfect sovereign plan, he made a, a provision for sin by sending his son, promised even at that curse to be born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to be obedient to the will and the law of God and to die in our place as a substitute, bearing the awful wrath of God. Jesus uh, came and he died in our place against our lawless rebellion and to be our sin offering. Jesus came willingly and laid down his life. And yet God raised him from the dead and God exalted him to the highest place. And one day Jesus will return to consummate his kingdom for his bride, his people, and at the same time put all of his enemies at his feet. And so I implore you today, to not look to your own good works, to not look to your own religious affiliation. Well, my parents went to church, so I'm, I'm good. I implore you not to look back at a two-year-old prayer, a seven-year-old prayer as wrath insurance. But today you would say, I must receive the work of Christ on my behalf. I need to put my flesh to death by how? By being made alive by the spirit of God. And if you've never done that, I'll be available at the end of the service today. I'd love to share the hope of the gospel, the hope of salvation that's not found in you, but it's found only in Jesus Christ. Today, repent. Today is the day of salvation. Now, I want to apply this uh, text. Again, this is an indicative. So this is what we have. This is not go out and do this. Just enjoy it. But I think there's three ways that we can kind of um, put some feet to this. All right, so three ways we can apply this. What are the so what's? So what? In light of that, so what? Well, three things. Number one, please write these down. I want you to marinate on this a little bit this week. Number one, we have less fellowship with unbelievers than we suppose. I mean, these are, these are an enmity. These are opposite. These are against one another. Paul told the Corinthians a series of questions. He asked them a series of questions about our connection with the world. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 6, and I like the way the New Living Translation puts this because it captures some different words uh, that kind of highlight this. Notice Paul says on the screen, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. And here's the questions. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and and idols. See those words on the screen? Teaming up, partnering, living with, having harmony, having union. Okay, now this doesn't mean that we live completely isolated from the world and let's find a monastery and like just escape. That's not the idea. But I just want to challenge you for a minute in thinking about how yoked together you are in fellowship with those who live as God's enemies. What does that look like in your life? Barnhouse tells the story of uh, the young boys who worked in the streets of London years ago. And at one point in one small section of London, all of the boys started whistling on their way to work and their whistles were, uh, the tone of their whistle was completely out of tune. And Barnhouse says what had happened was that the bells of Westminster were slightly out of tune and the boys had heard it incorrectly and they were basically not realizing quite unconsciously Uh, that the pitch was off, but they copied the exact pitch. And so Barnhouse goes on to say, so too, we tend to copy the people with whom we associate. We borrow thoughts from the books we read, the programs to which we listen, and I would add, and watch, almost without knowing it. But here's what he says, God has given us his word, which is the absolute pitch of life and living. And if we learn to sing by it, we shall easily detect the false in all of the music of the world. See, you and I, have less fellowship with the unregenerate than we suppose. So I just want to challenge you. If you would say today, my very best friends in life are all ungodly and unbelieving. I would just challenge you. What do you truly spiritually have in common? Now it's great to be in the world, not of the world, to be sharing the gospel, to to be in faithful presence and close community with people who are unbelieving. That's that's a good thing. That's an important thing. I'm talking about the true fellowship. I'm not talking about like, oh, we watch Stranger Things and, and we love it. I'm not talking about that sort of fellowship. That's just something you have in common that you enjoy. I'm talking about the true biblical koinonia, which is the word for fellowship. The idea is like we have, we have all things in common. We share things in common. We find unity and union together with others. And that is not with the unbelieving world, right? That, that is with one another. You and I share that fellowship, that koinonia. And so in a minute, like at the end of our service, we're going to have our, our covenant Sunday where you're going to meet and be introduced to many of our new members. But what they're doing is saying, I'm I'm not, I'm not necessarily leaning away from the body of Christ. I'm leaning into it. And I, I want to find like the worth of friendships and connection here among God's people. This is what we truly have in common. So I just challenge you, evaluate your friendships and and the influence the world has on you and consider what it means to be joined closely together with people who are opposed to the ways of our gracious God. That's the first point. But secondly, if you're taking note, I want you to jot this down. We have less connection with the flesh than we suppose. Let me just give you a little insight. I originally was gonna um, study this text and and kind of misread it when I first studied it. When I first studied it, I thought what Paul was saying is, hey guys, you need to stop living in the flesh and just live in the spirit. That's not what he's saying here. He's drawing a contrast between two totally opposing ways of life. And so what he's getting at is you don't live that way anymore. You don't have the flesh as far as having to submit to it. You don't have the spirit. And I can't really say it better than Paul does in Galatians 5. You can jot that verse down and read it later. Galatians 5, 16 through 24. Paul says, walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh because they're opposed to one another. And they're really obvious. You don't, know, you don't have to have Bible trivia to know that sexual immorality and idolatry and jealousy and rivalries... And things like that, this long list is the works of the flesh. But he says, but the fruit of the spirit, fruit of the spirit is love. And it it demonstrates itself in joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so, so on. And he says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so you and I are no longer controlled by the flesh. We've been made new. We're under the control of a new and more powerful and gracious and gentle master. So we don't have to walk in the ways that used to dominate uh, our lives. No, we crucify the flesh and we walk in the spirit. So as a believer, that means we have less connection to the flesh than we suppose. That also means number three is true. And I'd love for you to jot this down. Number three, that means we have more of a reliance upon God's Holy Spirit than we suppose listen, this is not telling you to put some Cholula sauce on your awesomeness. Like, like I'm going to go out and like be a better Christian, and I, I'm just going to try to amp it up a little bit and, and become better. No, this is reminding us that the Spirit is the one who produces this. So of the three persons of the Trinity, the Spirit takes the primary place in the work of our sanctification. So though Jesus the Son defers in obedience to the Father's direction, the Father's initiation and the Spirit defers to the Son in the work of substitutionary atonement and redemption, both the Father and the Son defer to the Spirit when it comes to the day-to-day application and appropriation of gospel grace in your life and in my life. But here's my challenge for us. How often do we recognize in our reliant petition, how much do we recognize the Holy Spirit? Now, I get it. Sometimes we're praying, And it's not like the Trinity. It's not like the Godhead. We're like Father, thank you for this day. Jesus, I just and the like. Wait, was was He said Father? So that's me. And like that, that's kind of a misrepresentation of the Trinity of the Godhead. But how often do we give recognition to the Spirit in our reliance? In other words, how how many of you start the day? And I can't say I do. uh, So I'm talking about myself as well. How often do we wake up and say in confident prayer, Holy Spirit, I am relying on you this morning to give me the strength and life that my mortal body needs to serve you. Like, like, how often do we do that? Like, Holy Spirit, I need to walk in a loving relationship with my wife. <laughs> I need to love her as Christ loved the church. So Holy Spirit, work the fruit of love in and through me in my marriage. Or how many of us say, like, Holy Spirit, I want to be marked by joy in my conversations today. So Holy Spirit, please produce the fruit of joy in and through me. Holy Spirit, I need peace, shalom in my relationships. So please produce the fruit of peace in and through me. Holy Spirit, I have teenagers, so I need patience. So please work patience in and through me. In other words, how often are we relying on the Holy Spirit? I know you and I, we're probably not in traffic, crying out, Holy Spirit, I'm getting on 75 today. I'm going to need a lot of kindness because I want to kill people as I get on the interstate. See, how often do you and I actively rely on the Holy Spirit to appropriate and apply the fruit of the gospel in our daily lives. I fear that many of us lean not on the spirit, but we more naturally lean back on the ways of the flesh. And as we'll see next week, there is so much more that we have to enjoy in the spirit. And so I encourage you to read ahead chapter eight, verses 12 through 17, and we'll, we'll dive into that and what we have in the Spirit. Now, until then, uh, a prayer from the Valley of Vision uh, on the back of your bulletins. If you have your bulletins, take them out. I'm going to recite this prayer, uh, and I'm praying it from the heart, and I pray you would read with your eyes and, and pray this from the heart as well. You don't have to pray it out loud. I'll do that, but join with me as we read these words, as we cry out to the Spirit of God to do that work in us. Let's pray together. O God, the Holy Spirit, thou who dost proceed from the Father and the Son, have mercy on me. When thou didst first hover over chaos, order came to birth. Beauty robed the world. Fruitfulness sprang forth. Move, I pray thee, upon my disordered heart. Take away the infirmities of unruly desires and hateful lusts. Lift the mists and darkness of unbelief. Brighten my soul with the pure light of truth. Make it fragrant as the garden of paradise, rich with every goodly fruit, beautiful with heavenly grace, radiant with rays of divine light. Fulfill in me the glory of thy divine offices. Be my comforter, light, guide, sanctifier. Take of the things of Christ and show them to my soul, though Thee or through thee may I daily learn more of his love, grace, compassion, faithfulness, and beauty. Lead me to the cross and show me his wounds, the hateful nature of evil, the power of Satan. May I there see my sins as the nails that transfixed him, the cords that bound him, the thorns that tore him, the sword that pierced him. Help me to find in his death the reality and immensity of his love. Open for me the wondrous volumes of truth. In his words, it is finished. Increase my faith in the clear knowledge of atonement achieved, expiation completed, satisfaction made, guilt done away, my debt paid, my sins forgiven, my person redeemed, my soul saved, hell vanquished, heaven open, eternity made mine. O oh, Holy Spirit, deepen in me these saving lessons, write them upon my heart that my walk be sin-loathing, sin-fleeing, Christ-loving, and suffer no devil's device to beguile or deceive me. We ask this, Holy Spirit, that ultimately, God, you would be our vision. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.